Hello and welcome to Sporting Directors Corner, where we aim to look at football in the context of sporting directors, delve that little bit deeper into this multifaceted role and its impact within football across the globe. My name is Shay Lash, I'm the CEO at Get Football Group, and I'll be your host today. And as always, I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host David. David, how are you this morning? Shailesh, I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well, David. I'm doing well. It's a bit of a heat wave in London at the minute, so you know it's a little bit strange for start of September. But you know it is what it is, I guess. Climate change and all that. But <clears throat> David, today I think you know we're in the we're in the midst. Whilst we're recording this, we're in the middle of a, an international break, and I thought it was it was it was a good time because in the past few you know weeks and maybe a couple of months over the transfer window, we've talked a lot about clubs. We've talked a lot about players and money and, and all of these things. And I thought today it would be quite interesting to kind of go back into, into the world of a sporting director. And we always try to look at everything through the lens of a sporting director anyway. But today I wanted to kind of ask a, a, a couple of, I guess, questions and get your thoughts on it based on on the directors that you profiled and, and, and kind of see where this conversation takes us, you know. And and I guess we, we talk a lot about recruitment, right? And we talk a lot about the the kind of role that a sporting director has and where they kind of sit and and you know that they are I guess the central hub in 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 a, in a wheel where they have multiple spokes out to you know various departments or areas within the football organization but one of the questions I wanted to ask you you know based on the the pro you know the kind of profiles that you've looked at or, or just generally your own thoughts you know what what is the most important hire for a sporting director you know, and, and I guess it could vary, but I was just curious whether you're seeing any patterns about certain activity that directors do. Yes, uh, it, it is a question that I I've, I've tried to answer. Um, I think it's a it's a primary question. Uh, if you were to be hired as a sporting director, director of football, technical uh, technical director, what is the most important hire? To me, the most important hire is the first team manager. Because at the end of the day, results dictate employment. <laughs> you know, it kind of kind of is very straightforward, right? Uh, if you haven't won in seven match days, it's kind of unrealistic to expect that you would, you know, be employed match day eight or match day nine, um, however fair or unfair that might be. That being said, uh, you, you know, when we, we talk about important hires, um, you know, you. You, you you have to, there has to be a chain or a sequence of events, right? So that starts with ownership. It starts with the board. And as a sporting director, as a director, your, your a, a general theme has to be how do we get closer to our goal? Um, that is a very vague statement. But if that general sentiment isn't um, there, if it's not validated, that club, that director is prone to distraction. And distraction is the word I use strategically because that's what the transfer window is. The, the transfer window is very distracting. Yes, there are a lot of constructive elements to it. Um, however, I feel long term, if given the, the bandwidth and the, the space, it's outside of transfer windows where directors um, make a name for themselves, where they build and fortify uh, their projects. Transfer, you know, transfer window. Yes, it's important. Um, it, it's it's fundamental even, 
but that's not the majority of the football calendar, especially for a uh, director. So, so when you talk about manager, David, I mean, you generally find that the director will probably outlive the manager or several managers, I guess, in some instances. But in a scenario where maybe there's a manager there already and has been for a certain amount of time and a new director comes in, you know, how do you think that dynamic works? I mean, do we have any examples of, of that, long-standing managers and the director coming in or or vice versa, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it comes back to alignment. Um, when there's alignment, it makes it to where um, there's there's a – I can't think of the word to use uh, just yet, but every every project, every every leader has a – expiration date right sometimes those expiration dates are self-imposed other times it's taken away from you um we use them extensively on this podcast but brighton is a good example um they had paul barber dan ashworth you know uh controlling you know being the at the center of the 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 hub and spoke if you will um start off with i believe it start off with chris hewton um he his time in the club ends because in that portion of the project, they needed somebody to be, let's just say solid, to be very vague. They need somebody to be solid. Transi- uh, transition to Graham Potter. With Graham Potter, they start to see some, uh, let, let's call it resiliency. Um, again, I'm using very vague words to illustrate how it's different phases of the project. They start to see some resiliency. Hey, we can recruit a certain way. We can get certain types of profiles. And we have a progressive enough manager. All you manager tactical types don't, you know, bludgeon me with that saying. But like, you, you know, you have a progressive enough manager to where we can be in the next phase of the project. Oh, wait a minute. Newcastle wants Dan Ashworth. Dan Ashworth leaves. We still have Paul Barber. We bump up David Ware. Okay. Uh, in and I'll, I'll pause when you have alignment in the project and you have clarity, you have uh, roles that are that defined so that the egos and the calendar and the opportunities don't get in the way. Um, when, when you have that at the club level at the top. So again, using Brighton from Tony Bloom down, I'm not saying it's easier or harder. That, that'd be foolish to say. It's just more so, you know, who you are as a club so you can transition to what is necessary with confidence. Confidence is one of the most fleeting, but the most important thing, important concepts in sports. If you do not have confidence in your manager that he cares about you, if you don't have confidence in the tactical setup that he has um, uh, drilled into you, you know, all the preseason, if you don't have confidence in ownership to give you a new contract, it affects everything that you do. So when you have alignment and you know who you are and how you operate, dare I say bureaucracy, when you have that in a club, it allows for the club culture and the identity to flourish. And it makes it, I'm going to use quotation marks, it makes it easier or maybe a better word, it makes it more binary to make bigger decisions. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, do you think directors are looking to make a statement with the hires that they do? 
Ooh, hot take. No, uh, it, it depends. Um, what it depends. It depends. That's a really good question. I, I, I think it depends. And I would never say anything without having, um, confirmation. Uh, what, and this is just what I sense. What I sense is that depending on, see if I can articulate this in a way that makes sense, depending on how, how close that club is to the, I'm going to call it the, uh, um, the consummation of the project. So if you're maybe, I don't know, a player or a manager or a quote unquote hire, a transfer away from solidifying European places, you might go for it a little bit, right? You might, you might get that player, uh, that profile that costs more, but has more, I call it digital or literal ink that is attached to it. That brings more, um, eyeballs, more visibility to your project. Um, I think that happens more than we would want to admit. Um, I am on the other side. I, I um, as far as how I, I what I see works, not, not that I have a specific opinion, but what I see works. What I see works is almost this clandestine, we want to make the best decisions long term for the project so that as we continue to make these small, daily, sharp decisions, we put ourselves in a position to have options. One of the words that is just keeps hitting me in the face, uh, the more and more that you study how directors talk. But if you're like me and you're a complete nut job when it comes to sports and, and like uh, directors, I also read, watch, and listen to what general managers, directors say in American football, basketball, um, and baseball. And what you start to see time and time and time again is that you want options. You want optionality. When you when when you prioritize and having good options, you you tend to fear making. Um, I'm going to say splashy options. Because splashy options usually have a trade-off of less less options, less money, less uh, let's call it social capital. You know, um, if if you bring in a goal scorer that you know is going to score, let's just make up a number, twelve goals, um, but he has uh, let's call it baggage as far as do we think he'll fit into our club culture? There's a trade-off there between going for that profile or extending you know your your second or third choice striker right now and then bringing up a um youth or academy product or a project yeah uh graduate sorry and again th those aren't necessarily great examples but i hope that illustrates how you want options you want as many op again hello todd bowley hello chelsea you want as many options as possible in theory in a vacuum however you also have to weigh how you have to count the cost. How does that affect what we are doing currently? And if the current if the current impact is less than the long term impact, it makes it e in theory it makes it easier to make that decision. The reverse of that is true. If we can sign, if we can, I mean, again, crazy example. If we can. Uh, Let's say Chelsea says, you know what? We need a striker. We need a nine. We have to have a nine. You know what? Zlatan Ibrahimovic, we're going to get him out of uh, retirement. Uh, 
requirement, out of retirement, right? What, what, what are the costs with that? Not just financial, not just wages. What are the costs with that? Pathways, club culture. How is he going? How is he going to clash or mesh with Mauricio Pochettino? Again, crazy, absurd example, absurd. But I hope it illustrates how it's not just hey, we have X amount of money, we can sign X level of profile. We are we are a Champions League club. We're a story club in London. That's not it. There's there's more to it than that. No, that makes sense. I, I just think the way the football landscape is today and the role of a sporting director is obviously, well, I guess it's just as well known as a head coach role or a player role, right? You can just imagine that they want to make some kind of statement in some form, I, I'm assuming, right? You, you do see it. And I guess maybe especially with some of the bigger clubs, you know, where I guess the, the pressure behind you being seen to do something that is going to give you that little advantage over your competitor is a little bit higher. But they're just, you know, and this is a more general question, David, and, and you know, it's probably a, a much bigger one, but just from the directors that you profiled, are you seeing certain activity that they do to kind of show, you know, his or her stature to the football world? Like, how do they say, you know what, I'm a, a sporting director to be reckoned with in this industry? So I'll, I'll, I'll get to the heck question, <laughs> but I'll go back to the end of your last question. And the, uh, the unspoken, the invisible truth is that um, a lot, a lot, a lot, I won't get into percentages, but the probability that a director signed the exact player profile, you know, manager or whatever that he wanted is not as high as we want it to, how, it's not as high as we want to think it is. Ownership and boards and uh, and optics, chairmen's presidents, they have more power than what we think. So, or what we what we want to give them um, as far as uh, socially. So, uh, one of the the football landscapes to begin to answer your second question. One of the football landscapes that has always intrigued me. And I'm thankful that I'm finding it now and I'm able to parse it out now. Um, in this part of my, I don't know, football journey. But Latin American uh, football is intriguing, specifically Argentinian football to me, simply because the intensity and the veracity of, of the level of support is compelling. But then there's also a high level of talent there, right? Managerial and playing talent. So why is it so seemingly fraught with... Um, not so much insolvency that you see with uh, Italian clubs or anything like that, but why is it so, I mean, these managers are like water. I mean, they don't last more than two, three months at a time usually, right? Uh, and what what I found, uh, what I found is that, uh, and I believe um, I'm forgetting his name. He played at Boca Juniors. He is the uh, technical director at Fiorentina. Um I'll look for it here as I'm talking. But he essentially said here in Europe, uh, clubs are more like companies. They're more like uh, enterprises where there is one leader, one owner, and they find a way to obviously make a profit, but more so like there's one voice that you need to make sure that you're aware of. Uh, He said, and he's Argentinian, and he said, you know, in Argentina, 
clubs are more social institutions. So there's more of an educational, cultural element, and then more of a um, communal aspect to how and why they make sure that uh, Nicholas Bordiso, there we go. Thank you, internet. Uh, <laughs> uh, there, there's more of a social element of, of why they do things. He goes, so instead of having one voice like we have here in Europe, you have many presidents, many directors, many people who don't even have the title of leadership that you have to keep happy in, uh, in Argentina or, or South America. So I say all that to say, um, you know, it, it's great that you're, um, I'm paraphrasing here. If you're a sporting director, technical director, and you get to oversee the recruitment element, that's great. That my, I don't want to put a percentage on it, but the percentage of you actually doing your, your, your love, your recruiting players and protecting pathways is a smaller percentage than what is written about in the daily mail. You have to talk to and keep relationships with board members, with sponsors, with marketing. You have to do all these things that, and again, it's club dependent. You have to do all these things that maintain relationships. If your first most important hire is a manager, your next most important, maybe it's not a hire, but your most uh, important next decision is the flow of information that comes into you because you are going to be bombarded from all sides on, quite frankly, the best interests of the club. And that, that takes its toll. Um, I'm, I, I read uh, the headline... Uh, Ingram, Michael Edwards, they're starting up their own uh, sporting, or sporting director uh, consultancy. Mm. Brilliant. Brilliant. Because you get to help uh, other directors, but not, you know, not have to be in the club, not have to be in the press conference and take the, the fiery arrow. No, I'm kidding. But I mean, that, that is part of it. Uh, the decision making part isn't hard or easy. It, it is part and parcel to the job. What is hard? What is um, very, very uh, at, at sometimes you know just insidious is the pressure to be seen a certain way. That is that is the hard part. So I'll stop there because I see you have a question. Uh, no, actually, I wanted to pull you back on that um, that sporting director. You know, um, the company that they bring. It seems to be a trend with leadership to you don't necessarily employ a you know i come from a technology background right you have like ctos as a service right you have coos as a service i'm just curious do you think there will be sporting directors as a service i mean can it be done based on what you i mean it sounds really interesting because when you think about the roles that they have right every club probably needs similar types of roles but then every club is very different with their fit and alignment and their background the money that they have etc etc but the core run the core fundamental i guess characteristics of the job sounds like you could probably do it as sporting director as a service what do you think shaylash is already being done who what's you? that who's doing it you no 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 <laughs> no it i mean uh I have to be careful. I don't want to say it in a way that speaks out of turn, but it's sure. it's being done at at two big clubs. That, okay. Uh, that that you would say no, 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 no. So and so is the sporting director. 
when those that are in the know, those that are in the industry will tell you point blank. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not exactly that. And I, I don't like saying stuff without having proof to sure. back it up, but I won't go too far into that one. Um, but yes, it, it is definitely, it is definitely a thing. And what, what, how do I say this? Um, different cultures, different countries have different cultures and different cultures emphasize different things. Um, to use Christoph Freund going from Salzburg, Red Bull Salzburg to Bayern Munich. Um, I mean, I'm biased. I, I think how Salzburg has uh, organized their tree, their organiz- organizational decision-making chart makes it to where it's really hard to not, um, it's really hard to not be stable. Okay, I'll say it that way. Because you, you have a framework that that you recruit players, but then you also have a framework where you um, teach and elevate and promote managers. Well, the other part of it that, I mean, it might be, I'm, I'm early on it, obviously, but they also teach, they teach um, directors how to direct. <laughs> it's not, it's not a, a, an outright, dare I say, apprenticeship or anything like that, but they teach them what works and what chain of command goes into making um, hierarchical decisions that benefit the club. So going back to your question, uh you know, at, at some point, if you're, this is my opinion, if you're a good director, uh, you tend to make a lot of good decisions. And they don't, they tend to balance out as far as not looking so great. Some look great, then some look like, what is what is going on there? But it also takes time. It takes time. You know, I hate, I hate saying that because everybody knows that, but we, we don't like talking about that. There's uh, so every uh, sometimes I go into to phases where like I just want to share all the undervalued profiles, playing profiles that I found via watching data or sorry, watching video, watching uh, Y Scout, then also looking at the underlying data. And I'll see a player's name signed somewhere, and I'm like, wait a minute, didn't I didn't I talk about that player? And I'll go back into Twitter, and I talked about that player two or three years ago. Why, why does it matter? It doesn't because <laughs> it's me doing it, but it matters because it takes time for developmental traits of players, managers, even clubs to surface. It takes time for them to surface. So when I think of Jesper Fredberg at Anderlecht, how many players, how many, I mean, you could say that they're over the hill or on the downward trajectory of their career, maybe not necessarily over the hill, but not so great, but brand name profiles that he's brought into Anderlecht. That goes more to what your first question was as far as like, are they going for it? Are they looking for uh, 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 profiles or or signings of a certain caliber? I would say you, you start to do that once you have the underpinning of talent and pathways locked. Like you, when I say locked, I just mean like you have it figured out. You, you know how to source talent at every position and, you know, the, the other part that we haven't really talked about is the best clubs contractually are sound. Contractually. So when we talk about uh, Real Madrid, um, I, Real Madrid is Real Madrid. They can sign pretty much anybody and they can 
not sign anybody, right? Or let me rephrase that. They can not re-sign or extend anybody. Perfect example is Sergio Ramos. I think it's been three, four seasons now, maybe. Four seasons Mm -hmm. now, he wants to renew. Florentino says, I love you, but I don't love you that much. (laughs) Like, you have to go somewhere else. He goes, I believe, to PSG, whatever, whatever. Um, For those of us on the outside, why wouldn't he resign Sergio Ramos? Why wouldn't he? Like, even now, they lose Eder Militao a couple weeks ago. Why not sign Sergio Ramos now? Pathways. Pathways. Team culture. Team dynamics. If we bring him in, and I'm not I'm not assuming or, 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 or making up any fodder for anything. I'm just saying big picture. This is how you have to think. If we bring Ramos back in, how's his relationship with Ancelotti? Okay. How is Vinicius and Rodrigo and crew? How are those guys going to respond to that? Who in our, our Cantera could possibly be there? Not getting first team reps, not understanding, not learning uh, you know, the Real Madrid way because we are eating up a spot for Sergio Ramos. We love Sergio. We love what he's done for our club, but he is costing us in, in, in I'm going to call it invisible capital if we bring him back. Those are the questions that you have to ask as a director because as a director, your number one job, even though it's not always the fun things, is to have solutions to problems. If you do not create solutions, you do not have a job long term. So um, to, to, to pin my thought, then I'll stop. Jesper Fredberg, the last two, uh, sorry, the last four, the last four transfer windows, he has been amassing talent, amassing talent, 17 to 21 year olds, amassing talent. A la Todd Bowley. Hello, Todd Bowley. Like he, he's been stacking them in the Anderlecht pipeline. Now. Now, or I say now, this past transfer window, he's now been getting finishers. Older guys, Thorgan Hazard, Casper Schmeichel, Casper Dolberg. Like, he's, he's getting talents that have played in Europe, have played um, Champions League, Europa League, have played in bigger leagues who know how to finish. And that remains to be seen what they actually do on the pitch, but... That is a, an illustration of your, um, I think it's first or second question. When do you start to go for those signings? When you believe that you have the, the project ready. You don't, you don't just say, hey, we can get, I can't even think of anybody cool to say. Um, all, all, the, all the hipster uh, recruitment gals um, have, have circled. I, I don't know. But like, you, you don't just sign that player because you can or you have the funds, right? You, you have to have, in theory, you have to have the underpinning of pathways and talent in place to get results on the pitch towards your goal before you get said profile. Yeah, that makes sense, right? And that formula, I think, is something that people are always trying to work on to get the the, the right one and that blend of experience and young talent, you know, to, to get you to your goal. Is I think something that's been done many a time. What everyone's trying to look for, whether it actually works or not, is is a well, it remains to be seen, I guess. David, I've got one more question, um, and we'll see where this takes us. But I wanted to ask, you know, from the profiles that you know you've looked at, are you sensing any parts of the sporting director job, so to speak, 
you know, or specific activities that sporting directors are maybe trying to avoid or dislike about the role. And I'm thinking things like, you know, dealing with agents or contracts or the whole media circus that can ensue around football. You know, all of those things that can be used to, I guess, can be used to your advantage. But I'm just wondering whether there's any specific patterns or trends that you've seen. It's a good question. Uh, it, it kind of falls into the bigger uh, a conversation about being a generalist or being a specialist, right? And okay. I would say not, not nothing glaring. I, I mean, most most directors they like to recruit. We all like to. I mean. Football manager, FIFA, what like uh, fan, uh, fantasy Premier League? We all like to recruit and find "quote unquote" talent. That is the, one of the most um, <laughs> frustrating but funnest parts about sport in general. Uh, however, most people, most of those uh, heads of recruitment, chief scouts, scouts, academy directors, whoever, whatever your, your, your launch point is into the football industry, most of them are not good at negotiation. They're, they're not good at understanding. I call it the, um, the math of the role. And that doesn't mean that you need to have an MBA or some advanced uh, academic degree or some certification uh, from some bespoke uh, sporting institution. I'm not saying those are bad. I'm not saying they're good. I'm just saying they're options, right? Um, you you need to understand contracts. You need to understand. Oh, hey, like you know, I mean. To not go too far down the rabbit hole, if you don't understand when your club, depending on where you are, uh, what country you are, if you don't understand when your club has to file their annual reports, what, those are things that you you have to know. Like you have, like you have to have a, a wherewithal on. So um, one of the things that we see a lot with um, culturally with Italian managers. Um, I think sometimes Portuguese and Spanish managers is that um, they have a team. They have a backroom staff. I mean, Bielsa has a rolling <laughs> rolling crew of like five or six guys, right? Is that what, – what is – is that bloat? Is that hubris? Um, I think it's genius in a sense that you have people on your staff that take care of things that – you know, need to be handled, but you know that you can't handle it because you need to you, like you're in charge of the overall project. I think that that mentality, you're going to see it more, more for sporting directors. You kind of see it in a very. I, I want to be respectful, but a very large way with Char, uh, with uh, Chelsea and Southampton. I mean, having three or four guys who are essentially sporting directors or, or, or uh, something similar in title. And then they just, you know, they, they represent a club. What you're going to start to see more is a more of a fracturing, a splintering of specific roles, specific roles, because the head guy can't do it all. The sporting director, it's not that they, so to answer your question, it's not that they dislike or like. You have to get good at all of it. But what you'll start to see, like the NBA, the NBA, the clubs that do well and, and um, you know, um, tend to have sustainability, have a quote-unquote cap guy. They have somebody who understands the money of contracts and knows how to find whether it's loopholes or, or bylaws to where they can keep a player or free up money 
at a certain time in the calendar, right? So two words I've said a couple different times, but at key inflection points in this conversation is contracts and calendars. Like, I know that beats the, the, the romanticism and love of the football game a lot out for some who are listening. However, you cannot be ignorant of what drives the, um, let's call it the consistency, a lot of C words today, uh, the consistency of the, the brand, the product. You as a club have to be on top of contracts. You as a club have to be on top of the calendar. Just because right now we're in an international break doesn't mean that you don't review processes. You don't review, hey, who's going to be a free agent uh, December of 24? You you have to be that. I mean, so Monchi did a, a masterclass during COVID and I encourage everybody to watch it. Just hit Google or put hit uh, translate because he only speaks Spanish and just the 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 um, the captions the translated captions alone you start to see how a mind that is geared towards uh, high output or optimization it doesn't stop it, it can't stop because the calendar and the variables of talent being either taken from you or not working out requires you for sanity reasons requires you to be as prepared as possible and you can't be prepared without infrastructure and support, which goes to my point. I mean, Manchi says, hey, like we we've, we've had to build we've, we've had to put people in roles so that one person, the bottleneck, me, is not holding back Sevilla, the operation. And I would say the same as far as to, to your question. you got to get to a point where, yes, you make your hot your first hire, you know, your manager, first team manager. That's your most important hire. But you got to hire other people underneath you hierarchically so that the chain of information and the chain of decision making, it's not that it's faster or slower, even though that's important. It makes it to where you do not have to sort and sift through everything. You have trusted, vetted, uh, trained eyes to get better information to you faster. That's why in theory... It's great if you have, I mean, to be ridiculous, it's great if you have eight former sporting directors in-house. They'd, they'd all cut to the chase fast and put put their answer on the table, on, on your desk and say, hey, this is who we need to sign. And you'd be a foolish to not listen to them, right? Because there's eight of them. But then you also have egos and how those egos align to the project. So it's as as simple as it is. It's also very maddening because it's it, it can never be that simple, unfortunately. Uh, a couple of really good points there, actually. And I think around the the calendars and the contracts. I mean, those are markers, right? Irre, you know, unmovable markers that you uh, you have to be aware of in any business, right? So you know, and I guess as a project manager, someone if, if there's any project managers out there, they would always just go by contracts and calendars you know what are we supposed to be doing and when are we supposed to be doing it by <laughs> right so and wow. i think football football works in the same little way and it's interesting that you mentioned about you know the diversification of voices and multiple sporting directors and i think this is probably a different episode because as much as a diverse voice or a diverse or many voices can help maybe it hinders the situation also and maybe we'll have some examples um in future episodes but just one last question i wanted to to, to go on before we before we leave today, 
and it it was touched on something you mentioned before. You know, in a in a head coach or managerial role, right? You get all this innovation with regards playing styles, tactics, inverted fullbacks. You know, all of these. Do you think sporting directors are allowed to innovate? I mean, are you seeing more innovation in in all the time that that you've been profiling these directors with some of the activity they're doing? When you say innovation, you mean you mean everything, or do you? What do you? Like, what do you, what do you what I mean anything, anything, anything that jumps out, right? I mean, you, obviously, you know, you go to untapped markets, or maybe you go to try to get to the younger players faster, etc. Um, you know, I guess bypassing the system because we know certain clubs do that anyway and have done it for a long time. But now you've got Real Madrid going in and buying Endrick for X amount of money, right? So they're kind of bypassing, I guess, some of that food chain, so to speak. Maybe I don't know, but I'm just wondering: are you, are they allowed to innovate? I mean. It's more of a general question, really. I guess you always want to innovate, but... No, no, it, it's a good question because it... Uh, I mean, I won't be able to get to multiple examples, but yeah. it, it, is, it is how you keep your job. <laughs> like you have to innovate. Yeah. You have to innovate. I mean, I always joke uh, or, or try to make light of, of uh, how I think Florentino Perez told Juni Calafat that I don't want the next great Brazilian star to be playing for Barcelona, and I can I can just see them, uh, you know, at a, they're not eating dinner, but you know maybe they're on a balcony smoking cigars, and Florentino says, in 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 Spanish, obviously, Juni never, never again, never again, and then he shows him the door, and Juni comes back, only you know two or three months later with uh you know sir i have xyz uh, profiles no but uh, i mean silly examples or or uh, paraphrases aside you have to innovate you have to innovate um even in real madrid they they innovated or they pivoted maybe pivoting is a, a better word or, or a a side uh, you know a come alongside word in a sense that you know, Real Madrid in the late 90s to the, let's say, the 2010s, they were getting the best player possible that they could afford, um, which was everybody, you know. Um, but now we've pivoted to where we want the best young talent because we can have that best young talent for the longest amount of time. Football's changed. Sport has changed. You have to be you have to be in peak physical condition year round um that's a different conversation as if that's good or bad but if you're good and you're 21 you're probably how do i say this you you as a club or you as a sporting director cannot rely on that player solely to carry them to glory right you, you just can't you can't you know um there's there's too much that goes into the, the whole operational excellence of it all. Um, innovation is is rampant, but it's also muted simply because the clubs, the directors that are innovating, not all of them have results that the football community um, would praise, right? That, 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 that's part of it. That's part of it. I think of, I mean, we all know about FC Northland, right? I mean, who who have they not sold for, you know, 500x return in the last seven windows? Everybody knows about FC Northland because they've been able to sell players at a high clip. Um, 
the last two seasons or last two seasons that I can remember that they've been vying for the, the, the title in Denmark in the Superliga. But very few people know about what Viborg has been doing. Very few people. Even if I said Viborg, people are like, wait, how do you spell that? Like, like they, they, they don't they cannot really identify a talent from or a talent or a coach or a manager from there as easily as readily. And if I said, hey, do you know what they're doing at Lillestrøm in Norway? Most people, most people say, what? Lillehammer? Like they, they do not. There is not a a um, unless unless you are in the I'm going to call it the weeds of figuring out. Like I think I said this in one of our first episodes. If you commit, and I want to scare off the 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 ones who are not serious. If you commit to six to six to 12 months so a year of just looking at pathways just look at pathways of managers and players where are they coming from just nothing else not not you know price tags not um awards not uh under 21 or international college all that stuff is superfluous and you'll get to that if you just look literally what clubs are they coming from you would be astounded at how glaringly obvious a pathway to have results for your club could be. Obviously, if your club is Chelsea or Arsenal or one of the bigger clubs, it's a little bit different, right? There's there's more um, more details at play. But if you're some, respectfully, if you're some random club in France or in Germany or Switzerland, and you just look at where players come from, you can make a lot of headway by focusing on where the talent is coming from. It's, I mean, it sounds very simple, but it's amazing. I mean, look at Claremont foot, look at Claremont, where are they getting talent from? Right. I mean, the, the French lower divisions, which is just stockpiled to the, to the Hills with talent, but also Switzerland, Austria, they're plucking, they're doing things that we all know works. But they're not doing it since they're not qualifying for Europe or they don't have a manager who is, um, let's just say, highly visible. We don't talk about them. We don't talk about them. But there's always there's I mean, in every league, there's three or four clubs at every level. So first tier, second tier, third tier that are doing things slightly differently that allow allow uh, observers to see there's a different way. There's always another way to get to the quote unquote promised land or begin to get there. That's the beauty of football, right? I think, you know, and the way the game has developed for for good and I guess for bad. Um, But I guess that's the journey. That's why we love it so much. David, as always, you know, really enjoyed the conversation. I know it's been a much more, I guess, uh, vague one today in terms of what we've been looking at because we haven't gone deep into any clubs or or directors or players, but hopefully it's one that, you know, the audience and the listeners, you know, will enjoy listening to a bit more about the director and the way they operate, about the way they think based on the profiles that you have, you know, taken a lot of time to to look into. David, I'll put your, your Twitter handle in the show notes as always. And, you know, we really appreciate you listening to us and taking time out of your day. Um, as always, please keep a lookout on on our Get Football media outlets where we cover European football and world football with news, videos, opinions, you know, with some of the most plugged in analysts across the football landscape. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. 
And lastly, I just want to say thank you for being here with us and that we hope you have a great day.